Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we invite you to open our eyes this morning and to teach us by your Spirit and by your Word. Help us, God, to appropriate in our hearts and in our minds what you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The title of uh, the message today is Kingdom Life is Beautiful, Easy, Free, and Extraordinary. Kingdom Life is Beautiful, Easy, Free, and Extraordinary. You'll just see the, the title slide here today. I'd like the rest of your eyes down in the Bible and on the handout that we have today as we consider this topic. I was asked uh, to preach a message on sanctification this summer. We've been uh, taking requests, uh, Pastor Tom and I, and, and some of you have written in and emailed in your requests. And one of the requests that came forward was to speak to the issue of sanctification and a fellowship uh, with God. Bill Hinckley, I believe that was your request. Well, uh, here, here today is uh, my uh, take, if you will, my response as I reflect and, and thought about what it means to be sanctified, to have fellowship with God. You know, when we think about sanctification, we think about words like uh, being sanctified, being holy, being godly, and uh, we, we might think of a few verses that, that might come to mind on your outline. If everyone has one, please follow along. At the very top there, First Thessalonians 4 is one we might think of. Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Another passage, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul writes, Therefore, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And again, 1 Timothy 4.7, Exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise, that is, train yourself to be godly, toward godliness. Sanctification. Holiness, godliness. You know, I think if we're being honest, um, we kind of don't like this topic very much. Oh sure, we know it's what God wants us to be like. But in our minds, to be holy, well, is to be boring, right? To be holy, in, in our minds, when we think about it, 
is kind of to be dull, uneventful. Holiness and, and godly, godliness, that, that's arduous. We question whether or not such a thing will be worth it in the end. We like Jesus when he's offering us heaven. We like it when he forgives our sins because we sin all the time. We like it when he tells us about grace and about mercy. We embrace all of those parts of Jesus. It's easy to invite Jesus to come in and be our savior, to think about heaven, to think about grace and mercy. It's easy to call Jesus our savior. It's harder to invite Jesus to be your life teacher, your life coach. Everyone is competing to be your life coach. We look everywhere for that teacher. We read philosophers and scholars of days gone by and of present day. But when push comes to shove, we realize that each of them are just finite men and women. They get some things right, but then they miss quite a few things. And so we come back to this great realization, and it's summed up on your outline with the words of John Ortberg in Living in Christ's Presence. I'm going to quote this a number of times today. Again, I'll, I'll recommend this book. There's only a few things I'll take exception to in this book, but 98% of it I like very, very much. We come back to this realization. John Ortberg writes, Jesus has the best knowledge, the best information about how to live, the best knowledge and the best information about what a good person is and how you become one. Jesus has the best information. Jesus is the most knowledgeable when it comes to the issue of what it means to live a good life, to be a good person, to experience a great life. Jesus came to save us. Yes. He came to defeat sin and death. Yes, by his death and by his resurrection. He came that we might have eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. By grace, through faith in him. But Jesus was not content to, for us to wait until we die to experience his kingdom. In fact, in one such place, in the only place, in fact, in, uh, in all of the Gospels that Jesus defines, literally defines eternal life, this is what he says, John seventeen three. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's not merely heaven after you die. It is the daily Moment by moment, intimate, interactional, knowledge of God. Eternal life is living interactively with God. And this is something we have now, Jesus says. It's not something that we're waiting around for. We're not waiting for eternal life. No. The one who has received Jesus in faith has eternal life. You have it now. It's accessible now. It's something Jesus gives you now. The kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. It's right now in your heart. You have access to this life now. He wants us to be growing in our awareness of 
and our relationship to Him day by day, moment by moment. And as we do that, as we enter into eternal life now, we begin to experience what it means to live as Jesus taught us to live. And so words like sanctification and holiness and godliness, these are words that sometimes we grimace at, but these are words that we need to reclaim and redeem. They are words that are meant to describe the natural outcome of eternal life. The natural outcome of living in the kingdom of God now. A very famous uh, passage of Christ from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you as well. I want to say something very simple and yet something that is missed time and again by Christians. And that is that kingdom life is the most beautiful, the most easy, the most freeing, the most extraordinary kind of life that you can live. Seeking the kingdom is the best way to live. We suppose it's hard to come by. We suppose that it's, it's hard to be sanctified. It's hard to be holy. It's hard to be godly. It's hard to, to follow after the kingdom life. It's hard to lay claim to eternal life, to know God, to know His Son intimately, to walk with Him. That, that's hard. That's opaque. We don't understand how to do it. We suppose that seeking the kingdom life is hard. But the truth is, the fleshly way of living is what's hard. The worldly way of living is what is difficult because that is a life of enslavement. That is a life of oppression. Seeking and living in the kingdom is beautiful. It's freeing. It's easy. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy, Jesus said. And my burden is light. Dallas Willard on your outline writes, One of the lies, note this toward the bottom, one of the lies about the spiritual life is that it is hard. No, no. It is not hard. It is the easy way. What's hard is the other way. And that is what you see when you look at the world. The person who has the easiest, the happiest, the strongest life is the person who walks in the yoke with Christ. When the mind is right and the heart is right, and the body and the soul and the relationships that we have in our social world are right, the whole person simply steps into the way of Christ and lives there with joy and strength. It is not a struggle.
the psalmist David confirms the notion that to live in the kingdom way of life is the easiest, most gentle, and most prosperous way to live. Psalm 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, the mockers. But this man's delight, this blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The blessed man of God, the blessed woman of God in Psalm 1 is the person who has it easy. They are not like the ungodly. When they hear the counsel of the ungodly, they pay no attention. The counsel of the ungodly. It's easy to know what that counsel is. It is acquiring more. It is looking younger. It is making it all about you. And about what you can prop yourself up to look like. The counsel of the ungodly is getting even with those who hurt you. The counsel of the ungodly is being more successful than those around you. The counsel of the ungodly is what you hear the moment you come into this world. It is the lies of the world. It is happening all day long. Turn on the radio. You'll hear the counsel of the ungodly. Flip on the television. You will hear the counsel of the ungodly. Look on the internet you will hear the counsel of the ungodly. Have conversation with one another. Sadly, you will often hear the counsel of the ungodly. You hear the counsel of the ungodly all the time. The blessed person is the person who, when they hear the counsel of the ungodly, they pay no attention. The blessed person doesn't walk in the way of those lies. He, does, he or she doesn't stand And entertain those lies with the sinners. They don't sit down in the seat of scoffers. They don't park themselves, seat themselves in the midst of those lies. The blessed person has found another way, a better way, the way of the kingdom of God. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, in his word, he meditates day and night. What's the outcome? He shall be like a tree planted, seated, not in the seed of the scornful, not in the seed of mockers. He shall be planted, seated by rivers of water that bring forth fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. David's teaching us by this psalm, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, He's teaching us. He's shining a great light on Psalm 1. God through his word is shining a great light on passages like this one. He's pointing and saying, this is it. This is how you live. This is how you prosper. This is how you live easy, full, free, extraordinary. This is the life that is prosperous regardless of circumstances. Not that they'll be prosperous in the sense of rich monetarily, but prosperous in the sense that whatever happens, this person is planted, seated in the midst of the living waters of God. 
able to experience prosperity in the midst of all of it. A life that far exceeds their wildest expectations. Desire the kingdom more than anything else. Jesus, David, all the prophets, all the apostles witness. And they say, desire the kingdom. Learn to desire the kingdom more than anything else. Learn to desire the kingdom more than anything else. Seek it with your whole heart. Jesus says in Matthew 13, like a treasure in a field. Go out, know it's there. Go out into the field, find it, bury it. Go back and try to buy that field. Give everything to buy that field. Because the treasure is so valuable. That's how valuable the kingdom of God is. Sell everything that you have to get it. Seek it so much that it becomes your first instincts. You know, we know about first instincts. We know first instincts. Uh, I thought of uh, sending Scott, because uh, he's an easy target. I thought of sending Scott up on the catwalk and saying to Scott, if, if you'd like to go, you can, but I, we'll just we'll play it. We'll pretend you were up there, Scott. And to say to Scott, Scott, jump off head first. Jump off. This catwalk, head first, and land on your head. And of course, Scott would look at me and say, no. He wouldn't even need to think about entertaining that idea. Why? Because it would be Scott's first instinct not to jump head first, 20 feet to the ground. Scott would know better. All of us would know better. It would be our first instinct. We wouldn't even need to entertain the notion. We wouldn't even need to think about it. If I said jump head first, you would look at me and say, no, I won't. The only person that would jump is someone who knew that they were about to hurt themselves, to harm themselves, to do something terribly, terribly destructive. I'm suggesting that the kingdom of God needs to become our first instincts. So much so, that we know to not seek it would be like jumping down 20 feet and landing on our head. We need to know that the kingdom of God is so beautiful and so easy and so freeing and so extraordinary that we should seek it with everything that we have because anything else would be like plunging to destruction, plunging headfirst, to pain and sadness and harm. We have instincts that tell us when something's about to hurt ourselves. Jesus, David, the prophets and the apostles witness in the word that anything other than the kingdom of God, your first instinct should know, this might hurt me, this might harm me, and by contrast, Jesus wants us to feel that first instinct to be to follow the kingdom of God. To seek it. 
like seeking a treasure in the field. To go for it. To lay hold of it. To know instinctively, this is the best thing I could do. Seek to know the kingdom of God so instinctually as you know the law of gravity. Seek it so much that it becomes your first instinct to go for it. Practice it so much that it becomes natural. The default way in which you live. Learn to desire the kingdom more than anything else. John Ortberg writes this on your outline. Back page. The right vision of the kingdom will awaken tremendous desire in you. It will awaken. It can't be forced. And it can't be manipulated. It simply has to be a vision of what is true. That evokes a desire in us that is stronger than our desire for anything else. Because we know that to have it would be better than to have anything else. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, we're not conjuring up emotion. I'm not winding you up. My job is not to wind up the people of the church and say, now go! Go with that emotion and live with intention. That's not what Ortberg is suggesting is the extraordinary nature of the kingdom of God. Instead, what he's saying is this. He's saying, not emotion, not conjuring up emotion. We must know that this is the best way to go. We must have knowledge. We must look at Jesus and say, he's my savior, yes. And you know what? He's my teacher. He's my life coach. And I've looked at Confucius, and I've looked at Aristotle, and I've looked at all the other philosophers and scholars of the ages, and I realize they got some things right, but they missed a whole lot. And so I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to listen to his teaching. And by golly, if he tells me that to seek the kingdom is the best way to live, then I'm going to know that's the best way to live. I'm going to know it. I'm going to believe it. I'm not going to conjure it up in me. I'm not going to manipulate it or force it. I'm going to ask myself, do I think Jesus is the best life coach? And if my answer is yes, then I'm going to start having a desire that's going to start awakening in me. A desire to do what he says. And to seek the kingdom of God. By contrast, if I don't have that desire, it means I don't believe Jesus is the best life coach. Or if I have to conjure up that desire, or if I have to manipulate myself, or, or, or listen to someone, uh, conjure up emotion in me so that I go and I, I seek first the kingdom of God, if that's what it takes for me to get there, you're far, you're far away. Jesus says, you have to look at me and you have to believe what I'm telling you is true. I'm not speaking theoretically. I'm not conjuring emotion. I'm saying all of this because it comes directly from Jesus, the best life coach, the best life teacher. He is the one saying, trust me, when I say seek first the kingdom of God, as you do, You'll find a kind of life that is beautiful, easy, free, extraordinary. As you trust me, you will look at the counsel and the practices of the ungodly and you will say, who needs that stuff? I've got something so much better than that. Who needs 
earthly riches. I've got so much better than that in the kingdom of God. Who needs lustful thinking and cravings and desires? I have so much better of a view of love in the kingdom of God. Who needs power and the ability to rule over others? I've got so much already living the kingdom of God. Learn to desire the kingdom more than anything else. I know your question. You're still looking at me and saying, how? How do I do that? Okay, I won't, I won't conjure up emotion. Okay. Okay, I won't, I won't manipulate myself into believing something that I, I don't believe. Okay, I get it. I need to look straight at Jesus and, and ask myself, do, is he the best life coach? Does he have the most knowledge? Does he have the most information? And if I really believe he does, okay, you, you tell me that this will awaken within me. But pastor, how? How do I continue to desire the kingdom of God more than anything else? This is a, a common question for every Christian. Willard uh, sometimes likens it to um, looking for your car keys. Have you ever lost your car keys? Raise your hand. Just about all of you. It is the worst feeling in the world, isn't it? <laughs> I hate I hate losing my car keys, right honey? I turn into another person when I lose my car keys. I'm not the best Neil when I lose my car keys. We won't go in that direction of the illustration. Willard says, seeking the kingdom, how do you do it? It's like looking for your lost car keys. He says, where do you look? course we all answer everywhere i go all throughout my house i i turn over everything i open every drawer i go to work and i i open every drawer and i look around i go wherever i was if i was at the mall i go back to the mall and i retrace my steps if i was with a friend i go back to the friend and i go through wherever we were you look everywhere when you lose your keys there is no stone unturned. There is no component of life that you leave and say, well, it could be there, but I'm not going to check there. No, you go and you open and you look and you see, is it there? Is it there? Is it there? Is it there? And you're relentless, aren't you? Because you've got to find those keys. So you will take as long as it takes to find those keys. You look everywhere. Learning to seek the kingdom of God is like that. You start looking for God everywhere. At all times. In all circumstances. In all environments. When you wake up, you ask God, what do you have for me today? When you first lay your eyes on your spouse and on your children, you pray, Lord, how can I be a blessing to my family today? As you drive, God, where do you want to take me today as at work with your coworkers, Lord, how do you want me to interact with these people today? 
on your computer screen, as you prepare for lunch, as you order lunch in a restaurant, wherever you are, you're constantly asking, Lord, what would you like me to do in this environment, in that environment? As you interact with the mailman or, or people, the delivery person, people who are seemingly completely invisible to you, all of a sudden you start looking at them differently because you're looking for your keys. You're, you're leaving no stone unturned. And so as the mailman approaches you, rather than just taking the mail and walking away, you respond differently to them because you are thinking about how God wants you to interact with that person. As you experience fatigue and stress, as you experience joy and happiness, you're interacting with the Lord. Lord, why am I feeling this way? How come I'm feeling this way? As you watch movies or television, as you browse social media, as you play, you're interacting with the Lord, leaving no stone unturned, constantly speaking with Him, inquiring of Him, asking Him what it is He wants to show you. When you sin and do wrong, when you argue and fight, having the wherewithal in the midst of it, or if you're not, don't have the wherewithal in the midst of it, because we often don't write directly thereafter, Lord, why? Why did I do that? Lord, teach me. Where did that come from? Why did I desire that thing? Why did I speak to them in that way? What is it, Lord? As you tuck your children into bed, as you spend those final hours of the night with your spouse, as you lay your head on the pillow, it is leaving no stone unturned. All of your life is a gift of your Creator. What part of your life do you think your Creator should not be in? Seeking the kingdom is training your mind to think about what God is doing in the midst of every single detail. Every single interaction, every single moment, it is like looking for your car keys. You look everywhere. You are relentlessly seeking it. Let God into everything. Willard writes, middle of the back page, God's kingdom is God in action. What is God doing now where I am? I am seeking the kingdom of God when I am face to face in a face-to-face relationship with another person. It doesn't matter if this other person is my enemy. I am given under God the ability to love and bring blessing to that person no matter who it may be. The most important people, note this, we'll underline this, the most important people are the ones closest to us. And by closest, he means literally, in proximity, the most important people in your life are the people right in front of you, right now. You are the most important people in my life right now. Willard says, wherever you go, wherever you go, to the mall, to work, to home, out playing, recreation, wherever you go, the people that surround you are the most important people that God has put before you. It's in our personal relationships, he continues, to other people. We seek the kingdom of God where we are to allow God to be present in everything that we are and everything that we do. And we allow him to act and overrule and guide and help us become what he intended us to be. Looking for him everywhere. Let him look everywhere in you. 
one of the most difficult hindrances toward our own sanctification and growth in the kingdom is our sin. Our sin plagues us. It beats us up. Our sin lies to us. It's the counsel of the ungodly. It tells us there's a better way to live. It tries to become our default, our instinctual way of living. And quite frankly, sin often is our instinctual way of living. Paul described it this way in Romans 7. He said, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. I'm sold under sin. For what am I doing? I don't understand. What I will to do, what I want to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. For the good that I will, that I want to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We say, how do we seek the kingdom when this is my experience? It just sounds like platitudes, Neil. It just sounds like theory. This Romans 7, I get that. That's my experience. How do I break free of that? How do I come into this beautiful and free and easy and extraordinary kingdom that you speak of? We must let God look into and speak into that part of your life that is plagued by sin. Now he's the one looking for the keys. Only this time the keys are that sin that you've hidden for so long. And you and I have to let God look for that key in you. Look for those keys, those sins. We don't let him look into it very often. We must let him look and uncover it. We must acknowledge it. We must name it for what it is. Confess it. Tell God audibly what it is that we struggle with. Of course he already knows what it is. But there is power in confession. So name it. In the presence of the Spirit of God, call it out for what it is. And then state your desire. What do you want? Do you want to get rid of it? Have you come to the point of knowing that it is sin, whatever it is, and that it is not good for you? It's harmful to you. Many of us haven't come to that point. I'll just stop there. Many of us haven't come to that point. We know in our mind that it's sin, but our heart loves it. Our heart loves it. Because we believe that going down that path of sin, that going down that counsel of the ungodly, 
is a better way to live. We acknowledge it's sin in our mind because we read the Bible and we see, well, yeah, it says it's not good, but our heart relentlessly follows what we think is the truth. We get lied to by sin. So you have to ask yourself, do I not just know it's sin in my mind, but do I realize in my heart this is horribly destructive to me? This is wicked and is ruining me. It is a cancer in my bones and it's going to suck the life out of me if I don't get this right. Get there. State your desire. Confess your sin. God, I want to remove this from my life. I know this is bad for me. I know this is not the direction that I am to go. God, I repent of this sin. I want your help in removing it, asking the Spirit of God for help, immersing yourself then in Scripture that speaks directly to that sin, filling you with truth about that sin, about its destructiveness. And then look and see, are there practical things I can do? Are there spiritual disciplines that I can practice to throw off that sin, to throw it away? Practical things. Things like not going to that place where I sin. Things like not having access to that luxury that leads me to sin. Are there practical, literally practical things I can do to remove from my life that will keep me from it? Are there spiritual disciplines that I can practice to throw off that sin? Do I sin Is gossip my sin? Practices of silence and solitude before God might do well for you. Is lust and an insatious appetite for for your own physical pleasure, is that your sin? Disciplines like fasting and the removal of food to remind yourself that you're dependent on God, not just on your physical appetite. Such a discipline of fasting might be good for you. Willard concludes, final quote from him, we have to go to the parts of the self and identify what is it that defeats us. We have to go back to that, whatever it is that defeats us, go back to that with the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God. A major part of repentance is looking at things and seeing them for what they are. For the most part, that alone will begin to loosen the grip that we then we can begin to break through as Paul does in Romans 8 when he says, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Seeking the kingdom does not mean your your problems will disappear. But it means you will always take those problems before the throne of grace and ask God for him to act in the midst of it. Ask for his action His kingdom in the midst of it. What have we been talking about this morning? We've been talking about sanctification, about walking and growing with God. We've been talking about holiness. We've been talking about godliness. But more than that, we've been trying to redeem these words. They're not boring words. They're not dull. It is not dull to be holy. It is not uneventful to be sanctified. It is not arduous to be godly. 
what we are saying is to seek these things, to seek the kingdom of God, is to seek the most beautiful, the most easy, the most freeing, the most extraordinary life possible. And it's not just theory. It's reality. It's how Jesus, our life teacher, defines the good life. I think he knows what he's talking about. It's a different kind of Christian life than many of us have even understood to this point. Many of us, we still look at the holy life and we think of the Pharisees. We think of the holy life and we think of people that are holy and and set apart like, like the Pharisees were. But of course, when we read the Gospels, we see that the Pharisees were people who compelled others, compelled others to do what was right. The Pharisees were people who forced others and forced others to do what was right. And by contrast, the way of Jesus, as we're describing and as the New Testament describes, is that Jesus wants to make you, he wants to transform your heart and your mind in such a way that it is the natural outflow of your life that you would do what is right and good and true. Jesus' desire is that it would automatically begin to flow through you because you've come to a belief, not a theoretical doctrinal belief, but a real heart belief that says, he knows what he's talking about. He knows the best way to live. I'm going to follow this. I'm going to do this. Jesus invites us to become the kind of people who automatically do what is right. Because our heart and our mind have been transformed by the Spirit of God. And the way that happens, friends, the way that happens is to relentlessly desire the kingdom of God more than anything else. To seek for it like you search for your lost keys. Transformation. Real change. New life. It all starts from the inside. We said last week, the tongue follows correctness, social correctness. You can say all that you want with your tongue. Really, in the end, you're probably just conforming to the social group around you. It is the heart that follows truth. It is the heart that follows what you believe to be true. It starts on the inside. Jesus wants your heart. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Do you believe? Not asking for your um, doctrinal affirmations. I'm asking a different question. Do you believe that the counsel of the ungodly that you follow now the sin that plagues you now, do you really believe it is harmful and destructive? Do you really believe that to seek the kingdom would be the smartest, 
the wisest and would result in the most beautiful and easy and liberating an extraordinary kind of life? Do you really believe that? If you do, I cannot wait to watch you. I can't. I can't wait to watch you live. John Ortberg asked Dallas Willard once, he said, uh, He said, Dallas, how do I, how do I get, how do I raise up the spiritual growth and life of the people in my church? How do I do it? What's the program? What's the books? Uh, What do they need to read? What program do they need to go through? How do I lift up and raise up the spiritual life and growth of the people of my church. You know what Dallas said to him? He said, you make sure that your life is abundantly lived seeking the kingdom of God. If your people see you ardently, feverishly, seeking the kingdom of God, they will know it to be true, they will believe it, and they will follow you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we have a lot of uh, doctrinal affirmations that we can assent to. Uh, We could sign a, a very long statement on what we believe and give assent to it. But Father, we're learning that to be intimate with you, to be in deep fellowship with you, is to be a person who truly believes that to seek the kingdom would be the absolute most extraordinary way to live. I'm not convinced, Lord, that many of us believe that yet. We are desperate, though, Lord. We are desperate for you to show us time and again that it is the best way to live. And as we come to that awareness, God, let us throw off the lies of the counsel of the ungodly And let us feverishly, moment by moment, seek your kingdom wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.